Hello, Michelle Laurie here. It's no secret that Australia's property market is out of control these days, but I, for one, can't seem to stop following along. I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be honest. What's up, what's down, and who on earth is paying those prices for those houses? So I want to personally recommend a podcast for you. It's called Real Property. It'll keep you across the latest information on the Australian property market in a clear and easy-to-digest way. Real Property, building a community of more informed property buyers. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. I must say that the very first inkling of it was when my wife burst into tears on the phone and she had a call from our son who said that a girl he'd been with at Club Bayview in Claremont the night before had been abducted and raped at the local cemetery. Little did I know that the guy who did that crime was would go on to become the Claremont serial killer. Brett Christian is the managing editor and owner of Perth's Post Newspapers, which he established in 1997. The group started with the Subiaco Post, but over the years it's expanded to include the Nedlands, Cottesloe, Mosman Park, Cambridge and Claremont Posts, which means that Brett Christian and his journalists had a front row seat for Australia's longest running criminal investigation, the hunt for the Claremont serial killer. 
This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. After decades of reporting the twists and turns of the investigation, journalist Brett Christian sat through all 95 days of evidence against Bradley Robert Edwards. The trial finally concluded in December 2020 and Brett Christian's excellent book, Stalking Claremont, is available now. Brett joined me to talk about what he now knows about the killer who hid in plain sight for so long. About the macabre trophies he kept from his victims and in one case, even left in the worst possible location for a family member to discover. But first, Brett takes us back to January 1996, when he first began reporting on what would later become known as the Claremont serial murders. Sarah Spears, who was the first person to be abducted and, and the police say murdered, she was treated as a missing person for two weeks. I mean, her friends and family knew straight away that there's no way in the world she could just go out and not come home. But, you know, the police get so many missing person calls that they, they go through their routine that they have to do. And it wasn't until you know, a couple of weeks later that they put the homicide squad on it. What year are we talking about? Uh, February, well, Jan, late January, Australia Day, in fact, 1996. And it was, so it was into February before a big homicide operation was, was mounted. Tell us about Claremont, about the area. What was the vibe? Well, prior to the abductions and, and murders, it was very relaxed. I mean, it was a very safe place to be. You know, you could, we went there during the day and it was much, appeared to be much the same at night, quite, quite safe. There was one line that you wrote that really resonated with me when you said that it was a place where, say, young women shopped with their mothers during the day and then they went out at night time and I thought, God, that is exactly how I grew up. I grew up in Toowoomba in Queensland and exactly the same streets where we were with our mums during the day and had grown up, you know, shopping were the streets we were drinking at night. And it does give you this sense of security, like you know every crack in the street and it makes you think that nothing bad could ever happen there. That was such a powerful line. Exactly, yes. You feel at home. It's just this is your home turf. You recognise recognise every second or third person. Um, and that sense of safety is was immense. And, and when that was shattered by this guy, um, it made it all the more worse. Uh, it, all, it made it all the worse because uh, it, just, it just stripped away that sense of safety that we're entitled to have, but more so because it was had previously been such a safe area. And there are a couple of photos you had in there from the time, and it's hot, it's sweaty, people are out on the balconies, they're out on the streets drinking and people walking home because it's warm, it's hard to get a taxi. You made that point that, God, again, that reminded me of my teenage years. People are jumping cabs. You call a cab, you order a cab, it never comes because someone else has jumped in and they go, are you Michelle? And some man goes, yeah, sure. You know, someone grabs you. (laughs) (laughs) So your cab never comes. So you get, we used to do this too. You walk towards your home thinking, hopefully I'll get a cab on the way sometimes you do and sometimes you don't next minute you know you're at home yeah because you've got not a care in the world you're young you're, yeah. you're bulletproof and not only do you do you feel completely safe but your your friends don't feel bad about leaving without you that that was a, a really common theme I had talking to 
sort of contemporaries of theirs yoga was that you know if, if you're in the sort of the rough part of town there's no way you would you would leave on your own or let let your friend leave on their own but it was Claremont who you know nothing's going to happen um so if someone would drift off into the night and no one would give it you know second thought no, you assume they've met up with other people that they know or whatever, they've headed home. Exactly, got a lift. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Spears was only 18 and she was, a, you know, a cool girl. She'd, she'd been to boarding school in the area and she was very familiar with it. And she was doing what a lot of them do, is, which is leapfrog for taxis. So they, that, what you just described, she'd, she'd got, rather than call a cab from the club, she she walked 500 metres to where there was a phone booth on the corner because no one had mobile phones then, or very few people did. So she she called a taxi from the phone booth and then crossed the road and waited. And the taxi only took two or three minutes at the most to to arrive. And when he got there, he she wasn't there. Nobody was there. She vanished into the night. It was like she you know she'd entered a fourth dimension. Which again for the taxi driver wasn't strange because you know it was frustrating for them as well wasn't it quite often they arrive and the person isn't there because the person's jumped in another cab so he didn't think anything of it I'm assuming exactly he went around the block and picked up another fare yeah um and Sarah I didn't realize that she'd been a, a boarder at boarding school so she's a very independent person even it's less likely that her friends would have been surprised when they didn't know where she was for a few hours Exactly, and she was very safety conscious. She was a country girl who mm. sent, sent to the city to board and her sister, her big sister, was uh, at school with her and she lived with her, her sister in a, in a unit her father had bought them and they they were very close and it was her sister who you know, raised the alarm. She, you know, she walked into the police station and reported her, her little sister missing. You can imagine what went through her mind. Yeah, and, and again, as you were saying, that's that frustrating situation a lot of families find themselves in when they're saying to police we're telling you she's not wandered off she's not with friends whatever we know this woman and police are saying come on she's only been missing a couple of hours you know she's probably with a friend or a boyfriend or whatever Mm. and they knew no there's something wrong didn't they very quickly especially when yeah especially when she didn't turn up for work she's very responsible of course, now we know that there had been not only the very serious, terrifying sexual assault in the cemetery 12 months before, but there'd actually been a lot of sort of creepy events, hadn't there, around the Claremont area? There had been, and that, that was the thing that really knocked me flat when I discovered that because there'd been close to 40 incidents where, where women had been attacked walking home, just as we were talking about before. And the police, many, many years later, well into this century, they linked 21 of those to, to the disappeared and murdered young women. But at the time, they, were, they didn't. The police just thought, oh, this, is, this stuff happens to these girls. And there was, you know, as the editor of the local paper, I would have expected the, the local cops to have said, look, there's, some, there's bad stuff happening to women out there. We, we, we're going to mount an operation to try to catch him. Or... Could you please put out a warning to, to young women to make sure they travel in pairs or uh, get someone to pick them up or whatever? But that never happened. Um, and that's a re- I think it's really, really frightening. 
Was it on the grapevine, though? Was it at least spoken about among young people that there's some creep out there who's, like, exposing himself to women, who's attacking women, who's trying to drag them into cars? Did women know that? No, no, they they, they did, but nobody put them together. No, Nobody, people just assume that there's a lot of creepy blokes around. Mm. It wasn't until much later when the police really went and did a trawl through all the files and all the reports that they realised they... First of all, the description of, of the bloke quite often you know, had, had common characteristics, and, but also what he was doing was, was uh, common as well. I tell you the most amazing thing about your book to me, and it comes at very early in the book, and it's, this is not a spoiler, is that for so many years we lived with the spectre of this amazing mystery in Perth, in Claremont. Who is this person? Who could it be? You know, he's a phantom. And yet, in your book, you expose the fact that he was, like, right there in plain sight and the fact that he was driving a Telstra van was even noticed really early on. Like, how, how did he remain a mystery? How was that missed for so long? He was incredibly lucky. I mean, that, you know, it's so looking behind the scenes to the police investigation. It was amazing how lucky he was and how, how often the investigation veered towards him, especially the the Telstra link, and then veered away from him again. And that was largely because the police became fixated on another bloke or other people and, you know, they were, they were looking over here when they should have been looking over there. And what I also discovered was he, he was looking back at them. He was striking up conversations with his friends about the Claremont murders to, to see how they viewed them. One of those guys. Yeah. And the other creepy thing about him is that he doesn't look creepy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I sat in the trial for seven months and looked at him a lot, and his sheer ordinariness is what is really disconcerting. You know, I've seen artist drawings of him with all these lines on his face and looking really sinister, but he doesn't look sinister at all. That's rubbish. He, he's got this sort of now sort of roundish, sort of fattish face. He, he was quite good looking in his twenties. I've, I've managed to snare one picture of him from back there. But he does not look, he just looks like an ordinary bloke and wouldn't look twice at him in the street. You know, with Ivan Malat, you, you, you can sort of imagine him as a, as a really creepy, horrible, sinister serial killer. But this guy, Ivan Malat drove around you know, a double bay or two rack in a Telstra car. No one would probably get in. But this guy, no problem. But even Ivan managed to charm young European people into his truck. That's true, he did, yes, yeah. But this man we're talking about, Bradley Edwards, you're quite right. When he was a younger man, he was he was quite handsome and, and I guess you have to be at least ordinary looking to get close enough to women to be able to abduct them. I mean, we know that he crept up on some women literally in the dark, but in other cases he must have coerced them into his van, do you think? Yes, I'm not sure how he did that. He, I think most likely they were a bit befuddled and, and really anxious to, to get a cab and, and probably mistook it for a cab. Yeah, the Telstra logo, and you know, there's markings on the side, there's something on the roof. Um, or they did recognise it as a Telstra car and thought, oh, this is a bloke out doing his night shift, he's going the same way I, I am. That's not a problem. It does seem extraordinary that a person, it's probably a very naive thing to say, but it does seem extraordinary that a person would commit crimes like this in their work car, you know? I, I kind of think I might trust it too. Exactly. And 
that again is is shows how lucky he was because there were three young men who who basically witnessed the abduction of Kira Glennon on Stirling Highway, and one of them was was a Holden nut, and and he 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 knew everything about this really boring model of Holden. I mean, it seemed a really strange thing to obsess about, but he even knew that it had this car had the wrong hubcaps for that model on. So the police had that, I thought, red-hot clue, and there were only 600 station wagons of that colour um, sold in Perth. It matter of finding the one that had the wrong hubcap, they would have had him. But they didn't. They didn't because they began to focus on the wrong guy and they, they shut down that part of the investigation. So Jane Rimmer was the next woman who went missing. What were the circumstances around her disappearance? Well, she was out with a group of girlfriends and they were sort of careening between uh, Club Bayview and the, and the Claremont Hotel. Um, and she had, uh, at closing time of the Claremont Hotel, she made a sudden decision not to travel home with them. And she was last seen by a revolving um, closed-circuit television camera virtually right above her on the footpath outside the Claremont Hotel and she was interacting with this guy that that uh, he's become known as Mystery Man and evidently share, well, obviously sharing a joke with him. And, but the, because the camera was revolving and it, it was... It was, uh, it was you know, we're talking about the mid nineties now, the different technology. Um, it missed her leaving, so it didn't show who who she left with, if anybody, and what what direction she went. So that was the last confirmed sighting of her, and her body was found about two months later. Um, you know, a good hour's drive south of Perth. So there's that vision of her, black and white, patchy image of her chatting with a man, a tall man. Um, he looks like a youngish man and she's laughing, beautiful, big laugh with this guy as she's leaving the premises. And famously, that footage wasn't released at the time. Police released it much, much later and the man never came forward. He's still never come forward even though the killer has been found and we know that that is not him, that's not the killer in the footage, right? Well, we don't know. Oh, okay. But I know I know people who think he looks similar. Okay. I don't know the guy well enough. I've you know I've not seen him from behind, but there's there's a a school of thought that it's possible that it, that that it's the same bloke. But whoever it is has never has never come forward. But as you said, the police didn't release that for twelve years after it happened. So, I mean, any, any chance of anyone who knew him coming forward or having the memory of being out that night or or the guy being overseas or in the, you know in a hospital or in jail or uh, it, far too much time had passed and and even when they did release it you know the lead never went anywhere. I mean we know from experience that they have their reasons for not releasing all the information that they have at the time and and oftentimes it does pay dividends to not so who knows what the thinking was. Of course, yeah, and of course they they hold back information yeah. deliberately because you, you get forced confessions, you get. Some people are weird people who think it's a good idea to say that they've committed murders when they haven't. And that's the only way you can find out is to keep back some details. Thank you to our wonderful patrons for helping us keep Australian true crime alive and independent. This week we'd like to thank James O'Connor, Ellie Wilkinson, Susan Bellamy, Carol Deanne, Deb Curtis and James Batson. You might have noticed you can now also make a one-off contribution to Australian True Crime if you'd rather not become an ongoing patron. There's a link to do that in our show notes. 
We're independent podcast producers, which means that unlike most of the other shows in the top 20, we're not backed by a major media company. It really is just us. The great thing about that is that we don't have any corporate overlords telling us what we can and can't say. The bad thing is that we don't have any of their money either. So any way you can support us as independent producers is very much appreciated. Thank you. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Coming up on Australian True Crime, journalist Brett Christian tells us about the tragic parallels between the Claremont serial killer case and another case we covered recently on this show. But first, I wondered if the murders and sexual assaults carried out by Bradley Robert Edwards turned out to coincide with stressful events in his private life, as often tends to be the case with serial offenders. Well, they certainly, the crimes certainly coincided with, with stress periods in his own life. Um, the the Karakata abduction, the, yeah, the cemetery abduction and rape was when his first marriage was was seemed to be falling apart. His 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 wife gave evidence in court actually that you know that he was getting more and more distant, and um, that we now know he was out in his Telstra car, you know, lying in wait for, you know, a poor, innocent 17-year-old, uh, which he admitted to. Um, when Sarah Spears was abducted, now he's never been, he's not been convicted of that murder, so I need to be a bit careful, but but the prosecution alleged that when, uh, at the time she was abducted, there was a huge blow-up in, in, at his home. 
his wife had uh, introduced her Edwards to a lodger who came and stayed with them. And the lodger began secretly having sex with her. And the, the, the household blew apart, basically. You know, his, his wife left and, and then she uh, notified him that she was pregnant to the lodger. And very soon after that, Jane Rimmer disappeared. A year later, when Kira Glennon disappeared, he had just very recently broken up with a, another woman he had met and had a you know, sort of heated relationship with. So the question you ask is, you know, I guess does do these events cause a, a person who's inclined to be a serial killer to snap and go out and commit a crime? Well, there's certainly a coincidence of, of events in this in this case, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Kiara Glennon was considered, has long been considered the last victim of the Claremont serial killer. Do you think she was? And and if so, why did he stop offending? And did he stop, do you think, offending in terms of the other offences that we think that he was committing, like flashing and sexual assaults and all those things? What happened in his life after Kiara Glennon? Well, he, he met another woman and married, eventually married her and she had a, a child. Uh, when he when he met uh, when he met her and he to all outward appearances he became a ordinary suburban family man with a, a good job and he was progressing up the up the ladder at Telstra and still drove white Holden Commodore station wagons around. I think one of the very telling things I, that I've sort of talked talk about in the book is that there was a, a professor called David Barclay. British professor who came out as part of a review group, and he he surmised way back in 2004, he said if the person who has been doing this may well have stopped because his last victim fought back and fought back furiously and may, may have given him a hell of a fright. And we now know that Kira Glennon did fight back. She was only a tiny girl in stature, but boy, she was feisty in, in nature. And, and in the act of fighting back, of course, she, she dragged some DNA from his skin and that, that's why he's in jail now. Really? Yes, yeah. And many years later, a traces of Edward's DNA was found under her left thumbnail and that was, that was kept in the fridge from the, the time of her autopsy in 1997 until two police sergeants began to review the whole case. They said, let's just start from the beginning and... Do this all again. Uh, we've, you know, we've got all, all of those years of, of work. Let's make sure it was done properly from the start. And they, within a couple of weeks, they discovered this this crucial sample sitting in a fridge. Isn't that amazing? Fresh eyes, just fresh eyes on the file. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And look, he'd still be walking the streets without without those those two cops. The it's an amazing. Um, Amazing bit of work, and once they had that, of course, they they then realised that something that they had not connected, which was the 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 cemetery abduction and rape, um, was actually the same guy because obviously they had DNA from that from that crime, but they didn't have it. They had not matched it with with any of the murder ones, and they, all of a sudden they, they were able to to make a match. So then they could. They knew that if we find this rapist, we've got the Claremont killer. So they then focused on that rape from so many years ago? Yes, they refocused on it. They they had had a couple of goes at 
at linking them, but they became so convinced that this other guy had done it that they thought there can't be a link because his DNA didn't match the, the cemetery crime. So they put that to one side, and it wasn't until they made this DNA hit, uh, which connected, absolutely connected those two crimes, that they realised they were dealing with the same offender. That's unbelievable. So uh, in the end, he was convicted of Jane Rimmer and Kiara Glennon's murders, but not of Sarah Spears because her, well, I don't know if it's solely because, but Sarah Spears' remains have still never been found, right? That's right, yes, yeah. And the judge made a very telling comment in his judgment. He, His exact words I don't recall, but he, he said basically it's likely that that Edwards is the, was the killer of Sarah Spears, but there was no evidence to, there was not sufficient evidence to show that. There, there was evidence. There was evidence of, of three young men in a car who looked behind them. They were going back to this phone box incident where, she, where Sarah Spears called a cab, crossed the road, waited for a cab. There were two cars actually in, in the street before the cab arrived. And in the front car were two, three young blokes who one of whom looked back and saw a car uh, appear to, to uh, respond to this this woman. They saw they saw Sarah sitting on the or standing on the curb, and one of them became worried. He thought this car maybe maybe picking her up, and actually made a, a remark in the car. But he also described the headlights of this car as being square. Now the car Edward was, was driving at the time, a, another Telstra, a different Telstra car, had square headlights. So there's a little bit of evidence, and also there was a, a similar car seen in Mosman Park, which is only probably about a seven-minute drive from Claremont, accompanied by a really white, terrible, blood-curdling scream. So this, the person who heard these screams saw a station wagon like similar to to the one that Edward was driving at the time. So there was there was evidence to put forward to support him as the murderer of Sarah Spears, but the judge in the end dismissed it and said there was there was uh, reasonable doubt that, that that was the person. God, what a blow for her parents. Are they still living? Oh, I, they are, yes. Yeah, I, I remember turning around and watching and having a look at them, their faces when that happened. Uh, they were devastated. They were, they were puzzled to start with. How could this be? But... Uh, They've been through a terrible time, and and they still have got have not seen justice. I mean, the other parents have seen justice, but I mean, it doesn't take the grief away. No, and also now the the three young men in that car in that story, from memory, wasn't at least one of them said, "Should we go back and check?" And then they said, "No," and we we didn't. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Did they? Did he or they give evidence during the trial, or was that read into evidence? Uh, I think all three gave evidence. They did. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. about them a lot. Yes, all the what ifs, you know. Um, and you can't, yeah. you can't go, you can't live your life coulda, woulda, shoulda. But, but really, that was one that must really, they must really regret. Yeah, I can't imagine. I can't imagine living with that for the rest of your life. I mean, having that really responsible impulse too, which a lot of us wouldn't have even had, to be honest, and then not not following it through. I can't imagine that. In your book, you you talk about so many revelations and, and 
that's why this episode of our podcast is not a spoiler in any way and shouldn't deter anyone from reading your book because the, the details are incredible, disturbing to say the least. Things like the fact that the, the, the killer Bradley Edwards visited Kiara Glennon's grave, detectives believe, three years after her death and left behind an item of her underwear. That is really, really creepy, isn't it? That's, that's dark. That's dark, yeah. It's jaw-dropping. And, of course, that set me off to, re- to do some research, and it's not unknown. It's, it's actually not not all that weird. Well, it's weird. certainly is weird, but it's not all that unusual. Like uncommon. Uncommon, yeah. yeah. I often think, you know, if you wrote that book as fiction, people would just say, this is rubbish, this can never happen, this person has got a ridiculous imagination, but it all happened. Well, again, Ivan Milat's garage was full of trophies, wasn't it? Yes. the belongings of his victims. But to visit her grave and leave that there, it's like what what were you hoping, that her family would find that? Or who did find that? How how did that, how was that discovered? A member of her family who was visiting the grave, yeah. A member of her family. A member of her family, yes, yeah. And, of course, he, he visited, this guy visited multiple times. It wasn't just once. And that's how the how the police operation went because they, they set up CCTV cameras in the cemetery and, and eventually hid in the cemetery behind the tombstones hoping he'd come back. He was coming back at regular intervals, sometimes with a woman. No. So that... And that and that is super creepy. And who did she think they were visiting and, like, what did she think was happening, this woman? That is a mystery. It's a, it's a, a puzzle, which I unfortunately haven't got to the bottom of. Mm. But, yeah, it's, it's jaw-dropping stuff, isn't it? It's, um, you, 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 can't, you can't think what was going on in these people's minds. No. Do you think anyone in his life ever had an inkling of suspicion, ever wondered, ever...? Well, his second wife made a couple of very cryptic comments uh, during her evidence and was as prevented from from going on. You know, she said at one stage she was in fear of her life from him before, just before she left him. She made some comments like that and was stopped by the by the judge after objections from the from Edward's defence lawyer. Now, that, that says to me that uh, I guess these paths that the, the ex-wife was going to go down had been explored in a in a pre-trial conference and and the judge had ruled that they'd be excluded edward's lawyer described them as editorializing um they were not facts it was just her her telling how she felt and that's not a fact but to me it was absolutely fascinating I noticed that he was given a 40-year minimum sentence, which at his age, how old is he now? He's 52. So so it's likely to die in prison. But does um, WA have a no-body, no-parole law? They do. Yes, they do. But, of course, he was not convicted of the murder of Sarah Spears, so, so that doesn't apply in this case. Not yet, unless they could get a conviction for that. Do you know if they're still attempting to? Is there any mood to try and get a conviction in that case? The police have said very firmly they're still very, very, it's still a very active investigation, still investigating it, and they plan to talk to Edwards in jail about it. How's he been since conviction in terms of cooperation and things like that? Do you know? Do you know what sort of prisoner he is? Look, he's he's in isolation. He's he's um, the last I heard he was, which was not very long ago. He's he was in he's got his own unit, own room, and a little exercise area, and doesn't. Interact. He's certainly not in the general population of the prison. Put it that way. Other prisoners know him, 
Um, so he must have some contact, but he's he's kept in cotton wool, especially after an apparent suicide attempt um, during uh, during the preliminary hearings. I've been to Perth, but I don't know Perth intimately. Is it the sort of place where everybody knows somebody connected to the case? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Everyone's got an anecdote. For instance, Kira Glennon. You know, she 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 was very outgoing. She had lots of school friends, lots of university friends, lots of work colleagues. Same with same with the other two young women. You know, uh, Sarah Spears was really just eighteen year old, just starting out, but had loads of friends. Very popular. Outgoing young woman, whole life ahead of her. Jane Rimmer the same. She was very outgoing, very friendly, you know, lots of mates. So they, they the connections are, well, they say they say most cities have six degrees of separation, and that Perth has one and a half, and I think that's about right. Yeah, and they also say that the ripple effect of violent crime is, you know, I think there's twelve or fifteen people directly affected or something like that. So by the time we factor in their parents, their siblings, their best friends, all of those intimates, really close connections of them who still live probably in the area and whose lives have been marked by the trauma of these events. You know, that's a lot of people, isn't it, in a small community like Perth? Oh, it sure is, yes, yeah. It's it's had a permanent a permanent effect and hopefully um, you know, lessons that have been learned in by everybody, you know, by by the community, by the by the police, by the media. I think, I think the media's got needs to do a bit of naval gazing too. The way they they went along with this um, this rubbish about the you know the, these other suspects, uh, you know, they, they were they they basically um, crucified a couple of people and they were in 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 the media. We didn't we didn't we. I made myself very unpopular by being a sceptic. Um, but, um, you know, I think there are real lessons to be learned there. Well, yeah, speaking of trauma, let's talk about their lives, these men who were suspected and treated as, as people of interest. We recently talked about Eric Edgar Cook and that fantastic series on Stan after the night. Of course, there were two men who were wrongly convicted for some of his crimes. Their lives were destroyed. Well, I know both of them pretty well because I've written a book about that case as well. It's called Presumed Guilty, and it's it's in two halves. One half's about the about as basically a biography of Daryl Beamish. He was a, a young deaf guy who um, who was who was stitched up uh, for a murder that Eric Cook had done, and the other and that that was a, a horrific murder of of a twenty two year old woman, a Melbourne socialite, in her flat. She was asleep in her flat, and she was attacked with a, a tomahawk and a pair of scissors. Mm, um, that's right. Her genitals were attacked with a tomahawk, weren't they? That's right, yes. Yeah, oh. yeah. So that was that was a terrible story. And um, uh, and the other one was uh, John Button, whose fiance Rosemary Anderson, was deliberately run down by Eric Cook in a stolen car. And John happened on the scene just afterwards and got busted for the for, for killing her. So both went to jail. Yeah. Um, Daryl Beamish, would you believe, was sentenced to hang for that crime. He, he could have been executed easily. On the back of his confession, which was clearly constructed by police. Exactly, yeah. yeah it's yeah. terrible. Yep, yeah. they wrote, wrote out a confession and made him copy it. They're still with us. Daryl Beamish is still living a, a, quite a simple but happy life well south of Perth. Goes fishing 
fix the, fixes up junk he finds on the verge and sells it to help his income. He's very happily married. Uh, he's now in his late 70s. John Button has also also married, has two lovely kids, uh, adults, and he now lives actually just in, outside of Canberra at Orange in New South Wales. So what of the two men who were, or three men you were telling us about, who were looked at very closely for these crimes, these these crimes in Claremont? Well, it ruined all their lives. It's as simple as that. They they went from being you know, ordinary people going about their business to to targets, being targeted as serial killers and having their names and images, you know, blasted all over the media as being called prime suspects or suspects or persons of interest. And there were three, in fact. There were, there were the main one was a, a public servant called Lance Williams who lived in Cottesloe, which is only a few minutes' drive from Claremont. And he, they had good reason to, you know, to, to focus on him because he was driving around his car after midnight, well after midnight, and looking at, at young women walking home. And uh, in, on one occasion, he, in fact, circulated the block 30 times and drove past them. So they had good reason. They, they had undercover police out there looking for, you know, curb crawlers and anyone who might be suspicious. And, they, of course, they picked him up. And they became more and more convinced that, that he was the killer and, and had somehow managed to conceal every forensic trace of what he'd done. Turned out not to be true, but they they did all sorts of things. They they tracked his car, you know, electronically. They bugged his car and his his office and his home. He expended a huge thousands and thousands of man hours and millions of dollars, probably twenty million dollars, in tracking him. And at the same time, all those resources were not being used to find the real killer. You know, one of them was the mayor of Claremont, Peter Wagers. Who, who was shockingly treated. He lost his job as a as mayor. He lost his. He was taken. He was as a child psychologist in schools. Taken out of contact with children. Still is. Still works there. But still is. Still. And he he's had a series of heart attacks. He attributes to PTSD as a result of the police surveillance. Lance Williams is dead. He he died at the age of sixty. Others say he was hounded to death, and that his illness was caused by you know by the stress of being being um, being hauled in and repeatedly questioned and you know, publicly had the finger pointed at him. I know his parents' lives were turned upside down. You know, his mother stopped going to you know social functions and they stopped going out because you know people believed firmly believed that their son was a serial killer. The ripples of Oh, sort of a wrongful accusation or a wrongful conviction. And you can never erase them. You can never erase people's suspicions. Peter Wayans puts it, puts it quite well. He said, he said, people might now know that I'm, I'm not a serial killer uh, because they've now caught the person who is. But, but they still think I must be the sort of person who's bad enough that the police thought I might have been. You know, so you can, it's, it's a, real, a real trap, a real catch-22 trap. There is much, much more that we haven't covered in Brett Christian's excellent book, Stalking Claremont, which is available now. His book about Perth's first serial killer and the two men wrongly convicted of his crimes 
is called Presumed Guilty, and it's also available now. You can still stream the four-part documentary series about that case on Stan. It's called After the Night, and in episode 186 of Australian True Crime, you can hear from the writer-director of that series, Thomas Meadmore. Thank you to patrons Erin Heer, Jodie Corrigan, Lisa Samuels, Carmel Dugan, Samantha Nixon and Josephine Walsh. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network.